0: Good afternoon, Covenant Hope Church. It's my delight to lead us in studying God's Word this evening or this afternoon. Over the last several weeks, we've been in a kind of an unusual series, but a wonderful, glorious one. We've been in a topical series. Brian has uh, led us in lifting our thoughts heavenward towards our glorious triune God, and so we spent time contemplating God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. But for the next two weeks, we'll be diving back into the series that I've been teaching in the book of Daniel. We'll be looking at the final two visions in Daniel's book, and so we'll be looking at chapter 9 this week, so if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9, And next week, we'll be looking at the final vision, which is 10, 11, and 12. So we'll be looking at three chapters next week. And so the first point of application for my sermon for this week is to go away and read Daniel 10, 11, and 12 before next week. We won't have the opportunity for me to read it aloud to us. It's a a long portion of Scripture, but I would encourage you to study it yourselves. Before we dive into Daniel chapter 9, let's go to the Lord one last time and ask for his help. Heavenly Father, we give you praise for your glorious word, your word that is infallible, it's without error, it's full of truth, it is good for us, it corrects us, it teaches us, it trains us in righteousness. It reveals to us ourselves and our desperate need for a Savior from our sin. And it tells us of the great Savior that You have provided in sending Your Son. And so, Lord, as we study Daniel 9 now, pray that Your Spirit would give us wisdom and insight, that You'd open our eyes to behold wonderful things in Your Word today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we've been studying Daniel, we have uh, been, let me remind you, we've been considering Daniel and his faithful friends. If you remember at the beginning of Daniel, we're told that God's people had been driven away into exile, and so Daniel's chapter, Daniel chapters 1 to 6 recounts stories of Daniel, an exile, a man enslaved in Babylon and his friends who've been conquered. They've been dragged away from their home. These stories are fantastic. They're very memorable. Most of you will know all of the stories in Daniel chapters 1 through 6. They're stories of faithfulness, faithfulness in the face of death, and in response to the faithfulness of Daniel and his friend, God extraordinarily delivers them in amazing ways. God saves His faithful people from fiery furnaces, He saves them from the lion's den, and He even saves them from a vegan diet in chapter 1. But when we get to chapter, chapters 7 through 12, the second half of the book, the book changes dramatically. We don't have stories anymore. We suddenly have strange, weird visions about apocalyptic, symbolic beasts and monsters with multiple heads and eyes and horns. It's strange. This is the point in the book where the children's storybook Bibles end Daniel, Daniel chapter six, the end of the stories, because these visions are just so strange. Monstrous beasts, cryptic numbers, tyrannical rulers. And so, when we got to this point, we saw in Daniel chapter 7, God laid out a panoramic picture of all of history from the time of Daniel until the end of the world. It was a strange vision. First, we saw these monstrous beasts, four of them, climbing out of the sea, and these represented four beastly empires of the earth. Following them climbing out of the sea, we saw the Ancient of Days. We saw God Himself sitting on His throne in judgment over these nations and giving an an eternal kingdom to a Son of Man. A Son of Man who came on the clouds of heaven. Last time we were in Daniel, in chapter 8, we zoomed in. We saw a, a, a zoom in. A slow-mo of the second and the third beasts of that first vision. But now the beasts had transformed and they'd, do you remember, they'd become a ram. A ram and a goat. A ram and a goat who represented the coming kingdoms of Persia and Greece. And God revealed to Daniel by this vision that dark days lay ahead for his people. But that these dark days would not last forever. And so today we arrive here in Daniel chapter 9. So look there with me at Daniel chapter 9. Here Daniel deviates somewhat from the other chapters in the second half of the book because the majority of this chapter isn't given to a vision or an interpretation, but to a prayer. Daniel prayed a prayer to the Lord, and then immediately there was an arrival of an angel with a surprising message for Daniel from God. That's going to be how we break up the sermon today. The two points this afternoon will be Daniel's passionate prayer and God's surprising answer. And what we learn from this prayer and God's answer to the prayer, the message, that the lesson that we can learn today is to hold fast to the hope of God's surprising rescue for His repentant people. Hold fast to the hope of God's surprising rescue for His repentant people. So, let's consider Daniel's passionate prayer. It's in verses 1 to 19. Follow along as I read it for us. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely seventy years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from Your commandments and rules." We've not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame as at this day. To the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away in all the lands which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. We've not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in His laws, which He set before us by His servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against Him." He has confirmed His words which He spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all of those who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy, O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. What an incredible prayer of confession to the Lord. You You can feel the passion in Daniel's words. Here in verses 1 and 2, they set the scene for this great prayer that we've just heard. We're told twice that this was during Darius' first year as king. It was during the first year of his reign. In other words, that means that this was following the death of Belshazzar of Babylon, the final king of the Babylonian empire. And so Daniel is already seeing God's plan unfolding as the first beast of chapter 7 has fallen away, and the second beast is now reigning and raging. But verse 2 tells us what specifically motivated Daniel to pray this incredible prayer. Look back at verse 2. Daniel was motivated by reading God's Word. Daniel was reading the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Now, the prophet Jeremiah was actually a contemporary of Daniel's. He lived at the same time period as Daniel, and he was left behind in Jerusalem with a few of the people that were left in the city with the wreckage of the destruction and the temple lying in ruins and being destroyed. And it's from there that Jeremiah wrote the book of Lamentations, a lament, a a cry of anguish to the Lord from the rubble of the city. But Jeremiah also wrote to the exiles that had been taken away from Jerusalem. You can find his letter written to the exiles in Jeremiah 29. In this passage, he says, For thus says the Lord, as writing to the exiles, he's telling them this news, This is what the Lord says. When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill my promise and I will bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. What wonderful words of encouragement and hope for Daniel and the exiles in Babylon. God's promise of deliverance drove Daniel to his knees. Daniel, at this point, when he he received this, this vision in Daniel chapter 9, had been a captive for about 65 years. He was about 80 years old, and he's still trusting in the Lord, the God of Israel. And imagine the hope that this promise would have given Daniel and his people that their exile was almost over. This is what it looks like to walk in faith, brothers and sisters. The New Testament describes believers as strangers in a foreign land. We're not just expats here in Dubai, but we are, if we're believers, if we're Christians, we're exiles on the earth. This world is not our home. But the scriptures hold out hope to us, too, that God has a plan for us, that God has a plan to bring us home. Home to be with Him in a new Jerusalem, a heavenly city. Our faithfulness to God will only be as strong as our hold on the promises that are found in His Word, just like Daniel's was. God's Word is our greatest earthly treasure. So ask yourself, ask yourself honestly, could you live without God's Word? You know that scenario, if you, could, if you were stranded on a desert island and you could only have two things with you, what would they be? Would God's Word be one of them? Are you desperate for God's Word daily, or do you neglect God's Word regularly? God's Word is like oxygen to our lungs. It keeps us spiritually alive. It fuels our, and oxygenates our faith in the Lord. If reading God's Word is like inhaling for our souls, then prayer is the natural response. It's breathing out in response to what we see in God's Word, which is why Daniel was driven to prayer immediately following studying God's Word. In response to the hope of deliverance, he turns to the Lord in a prayer of confession and a plea for God's mercy. I wish we had time to walk through every single phrase of this glorious prayer and unpack each one in turn, but for the sake of time, I want to draw your attention to some key highlights from this prayer. It's worth further study beyond this, but here are my key points. The prayer is largely a prayer of confession. That seems obvious, right? You heard me read it aloud, but confession should be a normal part of everyday life for Christians. It should be a normal part of church life together as a body. But sadly, confession is often rare or even non-existent in many churches and even in our own lives. Daniel expresses his brokenness over sin by his actions as well as by his words. He turned his face to the Lord, we're told, which means that he faced homeward, towards Jerusalem. And he also prayed with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. These were physical ways of showing his grief over his sin and over the sins of his people. Does your sin grieve you? Does it make you feel uncomfortable, like starving yourself of food or wearing uncomfortable clothing like sackcloth? Sin should make us grieve more than anything else in our lives, brothers and sisters. Daniel confesses humbly and openly in verses 4 through 15, he repeatedly expresses the awfulness of their sins against God. He doesn't minimize sin. He doesn't ignore it or defend it or explain it. He presents it over and over again in different terms, but equally devastating. We've sinned. We've done wrong we've acted wickedly, we've rebelled, we've turned aside, we've been treacherous. Daniel sees how serious sin is because sin is against a perfect, holy, loving God. Why is this kind of confession so difficult for us to admit our wrongs and our wicked acts, our sinful deeds? Well, I think it's because unlike Daniel, we often have low views of God and His standards, and we have high views of ourselves. Accepting our own spiritual bankruptcy doesn't come naturally to us. No, this is a work of the Spirit, but it's exactly what it means to be a Christian. That is the message of the whole Bible. That we are all sinners and we're in desperate need of a Savior. And yet God has provided one. So are you honest about your sin? Let me encourage you to be honest. Do you acknowledge your sin? Or do you deny it and defend it? The world is full of people who are trying to make the mark. They're striving to be recognized as good and right before others. And even before God, striving to earn a place with Him, scrambling to prove themselves. But that is an illusion. It is an illusion. It's make-believe. It's a fairy tale. None of us is good enough. There aren't good people in the world. There are sinners. We've all fallen short. We've been born into rebellion against our God, our Creator. So give it up. Stop striving. Humble yourself like Daniel. Confess your sin. Repentance is required to follow God. And repentance is exactly what Daniel does. He takes God's side against sin. Look there at verse 11. Daniel knows exactly the reason that they're in exile. It's because they've broken God's law. He says, and the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words. Israel's situation was because of their sin. God promised blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience, and they disobeyed over and over again. God even provided messengers, prophets, servants to come to call them back, to tell them to turn from their wicked ways and find grace and mercy, but they refused. They remained rebellious, and so this calamity fell upon them. God was righteous in sending them into captivity. But the prayer is not only confession. It's also a plea to the Lord for deliverance. We see that in the last few verses in 16 through 19. Daniel remembers God's mighty deliverance and s- salvation from slavery in Egypt in verse 15, and when that was when God acted in an incredible way by judging Pharaoh and saving his people from slavery in Egypt. And Daniel calls on the same Lord to act again and to deliver them once more. Daniel wants a new exodus, to return home with a restored and repentant people. But don't miss the basis for Daniel's request. He mentions it multiple times there at the end of his prayer, beginning in verse 17 listen to those words again now therefore o our god listen to the prayer of your servant and his pleas for mercy and for your own sake open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name for we do not present our pleas because you uh, before you because of our righteousness but because of your great mercy O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, act. Pay attention and delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Daniel's boldness doesn't come from his righteousness, but from the Lord's great mercy. Daniel's passion is concerning the glory of God. It's for God's namesake that he'll save. It's for his glory. It's because his people and his city are called by his name. Daniel's passion and his plea flows from a desire for God's glory above everything else. Sin is stealing glory from God. But Daniel wants God to be glorified. How often, though, are our prayers focused on us? How often are they mostly focused on our needs and our feelings and our wants and our desires and not God's glory? We have a lesson to learn here from Daniel. But God doesn't owe Daniel or us anything except judgment. But amazingly... We can still go confidently to him with all of our sin and ask him to forgive because that's the kind of God that he is. A God who's rich in mercy, who's great in love, a God who's glorified in saving wretched sinners who come to him for forgiveness. That actually brings glory to God. When we confess our sins to him, it gives him glory. We're asking for mercy. That's why we sang earlier what patience would wait as we constantly roam. What Father so tender is calling us home. He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they're many. His mercy is more. Brothers and sisters, God's mercy far exceeds our sin. More than a drop of water in a whole ocean is the difference between our sin and His mercy. And this reality, the reality that His mercy far exceeds our sin, should motivate us to draw near in humble confession regularly. It should motivate us to walk in the light, as we read about in First John. And when we walk in the light, our fellowship as a church will grow. We'll be confessing our sins to one another. We'll be honest about who we are. We won't put on uh, masks and pretend. Let's make humble, honest confession a part of our everyday lives together as families and as a church family. The good news that God is rich in mercy, that He's unstingy with His grace, should lead to a culture in covenant hope where we are free to be honest about our flaws, about our sin, about our temptations a culture where it is safe to be a sinner, and where we find comfort in God's immeasurable mercy. The 70 years of exile were almost up, and in light of God's mercy, Daniel prayed for God to bring them home. And God had a surprising answer for Daniel. Let's look at that. That's our second point, God's surprising answer in verses 20 to 27. Let me read them for us. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, The man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. And after sixty-two weeks an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary." Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and He shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week, He shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator." A surprising response from God to Daniel's prayers. Sometimes people wait weeks and months or even their whole lifetimes for God to answer prayers that they have offered, but not Daniel. Daniel is interrupted mid sentence by the sudden and startling arrival of Gabriel with a message. So whatever this message is, it's clearly important for Daniel and the faithful who are enduring exile with him. Just as Daniel's words are going up to the Lord, God's word was coming down to him. What kindness and grace even that demonstrates. How incredible that is. That God knows our thoughts even before they're formed. Even before our words crossed our lips. He knows our thoughts and our intentions. While Daniel confessed how wicked he and his people are, God responds with a message of hope and a reminder of His love. He says, you are greatly loved, Daniel. God's love for us can't always be seen in our circumstances. Daniel knew that. Daniel spent most of his life in a foreign ca- in a in a foreign country as a captive and we remain exiles in a fallen broken and painful world and even though daniel had been faithful to the lord he still knew that he and his people were sinners rebels and desperately in need of mercy and yet god says that he was loved finally gabriel delivers the message which we find in verses 24 to 27. Before we begin to consider the message ourselves and try to understand it, it's important to know that these verses are notoriously hard to interpret. These verses are some of the hardest to interpret in the whole Bible. That's the only thing that the commentators agreed upon. That's why in just four verses... We have five different translation notes in the ESV Bible and many, many more notes in study Bibles and so forth. But as we've seen already in Daniel, some of these harder parts to understand actually are not all that hard. If we don't get swept away with the various views of minor, minute details, we can actually see the big picture pretty clearly. And so let's consider it looking first at verse 24. Verse 24 gives us the main headline of God's message. In response to Daniel's plea to God to bring their 70-year exile to an end, God answers, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. Now, here's the first surprise for Daniel. Rather than their troubles nearly being over, God says, Seventy weeks, or seventy times seven, are decreed. Most Bibles include a footnote that this is literally seventy sevens, and so it's considered weeks of years, not week, weeks in days. The very same language of weeks, seven weeks, is found in the law of Moses that Daniel referenced in his prayer. In the book of Leviticus, don't turn there now, but in Leviticus chapter 25 make a note, read that chapter later, it talks about seven weeks of years in reference to the year of Jubilee. And this year of Jubilee was a celebration that after every 49 years, after seven weeks of years, when God's people would celebrate together, They would gather, blow trumpets on the Day of Atonement, and they would proclaim liberty or freedom to all those who were in slavery. Everyone would be set free from their bonds. Everyone would be called to return home and to go back to the land that God had assigned for each tribe from the people of God. They'd get to go home, they'd get to be with their people. And so God's message here for Daniel is that a tenfold, ultimate jubilee is decreed for God's people. But it's going to take longer than they expect. But the result of this jubilee was so much greater than Daniel could ever have imagined. Daniel longed to get out of Babylon and to return home to Jerusalem. But look what God promises He will do ...on this ultimate jubilee. He will finish transgression. Put an end to sin. He'll atone for iniquity. He'll bring in everlasting righteousness. He'll seal or confirm the vision and the prophet. And he'll anoint a holy place for his people. Here's the second surprise for Daniel... God decreed a plan to totally eradicate sin altogether. In light of Daniel's confession, God was saying, I'm going to deal with your sin in full. I'm going to utterly conquer it. I'll atone for it. I'll make my people righteous, and I will keep my word to them. That is the headline of this glorious vision that God has for Daniel. That God would deliver them not just from captivity in Babylon, but from captivity to sin. The problem of sin, brothers and sisters, it runs so much deeper than our circumstances. It's even deeper than our bad behaviors that lead to consequences. No, our sin is so grievous, it's so deeply broken because it's against our righteous and holy God. It offends Him, and His wrath burns against us. And yet, To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. And God set in motion His plan to finish transgression, end sin, and to atone for it. Verses 25 through 27 unfold this plan. The 70 weeks that have been decreed are broken down into three chunks. First seven weeks, then 62 weeks, and one final week. One of the hotly debated questions about this vision is, are these figures to be taken literally or symbolically? Is this seventy-sevens, which would be four hundred and ninety years, or is it symbolic? Well, throughout the Bible, the number seven is used symbolically over and over again. It's used to symbolize or to represent a number of perfection or completion. This goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, where God created the world in seven days. And it runs all the way to the very end of your Bible in Revelations, where there are seven churches, seven trumpets, seven bowls, seven seals. But, if that made it seem clear, of course Daniel was reading Jeremiah and he understood the prophecy of 70 years in exile, literally, literally. And so, there is a lot of debate about these things. Some Bible scholars have tried to calculate the exact timing of these years. There are a whole host of views about when exactly they begin and when they break down and who they're about. Trying to uh, exactly line up the details of 25 through 27 with historical figures and with events that happen in history. But before you all get out your mobile phones and put the calculator app on, I want to spare you all of that. There are a lot of very interesting views, and I spent a lot of the last week reading about them, but I'm simply going to share with you today what is my best guess. I reserve the right to change my view by the next time I preach Daniel 9, but this is my best guess today, If you want to do a deep dive, I'd be happy to point you to some excellent resources that will help. But in the end, you know, getting these every single detail right here isn't really necessary for understanding the main point of Daniel chapter 9 anyway. But for those of you who are interested, here we go. I think that the first seven years begin with the word to restore and to build Jerusalem refers to the decree of King Artaxerxes. He made a decree for the Jews to return back and rebuild Jerusalem, though it could very easily be Cyrus, who a lot of people may remember that Cyrus was one of those that made a decree for the men to go home. It may be him, but I think it's Artaxerxes based on dating, Now, Ezra and Nehemiah recount that when they got back to the land and they began this work of rebuilding, they were met with opposition. The builders basically were doing a construction project with one sword in one hand and one shovel in the other, ready to fight their opposers. And so you could definitely say that this fits with Daniel's vision of it being built again in a troubled time. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't like to spend much time on a building site, let alone fighting for my life on a building site. Eventually, the city was rebuilt, and along with the temple and the city, there was a featured water system that distributed water to Jerusalem, like the moat that's mentioned here, though not exactly a moat. But the trouble didn't end with their construction project. In fact, the whole period from the time of the return of the exiles all the way up until the New Testament with Jesus, the Jews were never out of being ruled by some foreign empire or some people, some other kingdom. And so, the Persians at first, Darius and Cyrus, and Greece, Alexander the Great, and eventually even the Roman Empire were ruling over the people. And so this fits with the troubled time that Daniel heard about. Verses 26 and 27, the last verses of our chapter, focus on the final week, and they talk about an anointed one who is cut off, leading to the destruction of the city and temple and putting an end to sacrifice and offering. Thankfully, here most commentators agree, this anointed one, or the Hebrew word Messiah, is the one who would accomplish all of those promises that we read in verse 24. Put an end to sin. Deal with it. He would bring an end to sin, and He would usher in everlasting righteousness, God's everlasting righteous rule, a new kingdom, that kingdom from heaven. This is the greatest surprise in God's plan. God would deliver his people from slavery to sin by sending a Messiah, but he would do it by being cut off. Literally, he would be killed. He would have nothing. God's great plan for saving his people was sending an anointed one to suffer and die for them in their place. And just like Daniel in his prayer, Jesus. The Messiah would identify with his people in all of their sin, but he never had sin of his own. He lived a perfect, righteous life. He walked in absolute obedience to the law of God. He willingly went to the cross to turn away God's wrath from sinners. He went to the cross to atone for sin. To atone for sin means to satisfy God's righteous judgment for it. To quench the flood of God's wrath against sin. This was God's loving, merciful plan to deliver His captive people from sin. This was His decree. That in his death, Jesus would initiate a new covenant. A strong covenant that's mentioned there in Daniel. Stronger than the old covenant. Which could never deal with the sins of the people. One in which we're actually set free from sin. And it's slavery. And we're set free to love and serve God. A new covenant where God offered a, a sacrifice. Once for all for sin. Jesus offered himself. That he would actually deal with sin by paying its debt in full through his death. And through his resurrection, we can now be declared righteous in God's sight. We can be granted eternal life with God. And this is all ours simply by turning to God from our sins. Acknowledging our sin before him repenting of our sins, confessing it to the Lord, and trusting in what he has done through his Messiah. If you're here and you are not a Christian, if you're here and you are not repenting and believing in Christ, you can do it today. It's as simple as saying, I'm a sinner, and I need a Savior, and Jesus is that Savior. Admit your sin and ask for his mercy. But there is one final surprising aspect of God's answer here in verse 26. It tells us that the city and the sanctuary would be destroyed all over again. It says, it will come like a flood and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. God has decreed in His sovereignty that desolations would occur. Verse 27 concludes, on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. God's plan won't immediately end His people's suffering. Rulers arise against God's people, wars will unfold until the end of time, and eventually even a desolator, one who makes desolate, will arise. This figure is likely the Antichrist mentioned in 2 Thessalonians and in Revelation. This is likely the the little horn with the blasphemous speech in Daniel chapter 7. But even this one won't win. God will bring about His appointed end and He will defeat His enemies. And so what's the point of all of this? What's the point? Why did God show this vision to Daniel just so he knows the future? What are we supposed to take away from it, this side of the cross? Why does God reveal his plans to us? Well, I think there are two main reasons. First, God reveals his plans to comfort his people. He wants us to know that he's not given up, that he's not left us. Redemption is decreed. In the end, God will win. He'll overcome his enemies and he'll deliver his people forever. That's our hope, brothers and sisters. We serve a God who promised to deliver his people from sin and he did it at the cross where Jesus cried out, It is finished. Rescue was accomplished. And in that hope, we are fueled to be faithful until he completes that work when Christ comes again to make all things new. God wins. He's victorious. Nothing can thwart his plan. Our faith in this, our hope in this is what keeps us going when everything else seems so dark in our lives and in our world. This hope fuels our fight against sin because the Lord Jesus has conquered sin. And through the cross, you and I have been raised with him to be set free from sin's rule in our lives. We can fight sin and we can win. This hope strengthens us when all of our plans are falling apart and everything seems to be out of control because God's plans never fail. He's never out of control. His plans might surprise us. They do they might disappoint us. They will. They're likely not to be the plans that we would make for ourselves. I'm sure that's what Daniel felt on some days. But we can rest in the fact that God is wiser than we are. His plans are better than our plans. His ways are so far above our ways. And He loves us far more than we could ever know. And the second reason that God tells us His plans is to prepare His people. To comfort His people and to prepare His people. Desolations are decreed. God is not hiding the fact that hardships will come in our lives. Don't put your hopes in this life. Don't try and create heaven here on earth. No, this life will be met with hardships and pain and trials. The Bible doesn't shy away from telling us that the world is not our home. Don't make your home here. This is enemy territory. We're exiles in the world, and that means that life is going to be hard. To the very end, it will be war. Jesus gave warnings just like this one. He even referenced Daniel when he warned of the coming destruction of Jerusalem. When he said, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Jesus graciously warns us. God warns us so that we can be prepared. He warned about great tribulations and great wars, and He said, see, I've told you beforehand, keep watch, be ready, wait for my coming. God wants us to be prepared for hardships. And so don't expect this life to be easy, and don't be surprised by suffering. Be ready for it. Hold fast to the hope of God's astonishing rescue plan for His repentant people. Hold fast to the end, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You are our great and awesome God. We praise You for Your surprising plan to deliver us through the death of Your Son. Comfort us in the hope of Your sovereign plan and Your sovereignty even over the hardships of life, the desolations, the dark days. Help us to remain faithful As we face hardships in this life, do it for your namesake. Do it for your glory. Do it so that you will be proclaimed in all the earth. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Our final song is.